You're listening to an app session from the 2019 Art Conference in Anaheim, California. For more resources to equip you and your local church, visit arcchurches.com. Thank you all for coming. Um, okay, so a little change in flight plans here. We, we're going to do this in an hour, and I told my wife, I can do it. I can do 25 issues in an hour. I can do it. Now I'm going to do it in 30 minutes. Because I want to leave 15 minutes for you guys to ask some questions. We're going to turn this thing off and let you just ask some questions about anything I've said. Let me just tell you this. Um, I had a friend tell me, he's like one of the greatest PR guys in the world. He said, you always have to answer some questions that people uh, are thinking when you're about to speak. And he called them the five W's. Who, what, when, where, why? So let me answer those for you. Who, who am I? I'm David Middlebrook. I'm an attorney. Uh, what do I do? I, I'm a church lawyer. What does that mean? Does it mean that I work with churches exclusively and ministries exclusively and parachurch organizations? That's correct. But that mean, doesn't mean it's about church law. It's who we represent, not necessarily what we do. Because we do everything for them, from beginning to end, soup to nuts, uh, the whole the whole kid and caboodle, okay? Who, what, when did I start doing this? Uh, this November will be 30 years. Be celebrating my 30th anniversary of practicing law. Uh, who, what, when, where do I do this? I do it uh, with my law firm, and we do it all over the country. Uh, and then also, we have organizations that have international stuff, and we help them overseas coordinate all that. So it's a really, really fun thing. I tell folks, they say, well, where are your clients? And I say, pretty much anywhere there's more people than cattle, uh, we have clients. Uh, I've had to correct that recently because we had a, cl- a client in North Dakota, and uh, that would violate my cattle uh, analogy. So, so we're, we're, we're all over the place. Um, why do I do this? Well, uh, real quickly, uh, I would have been a fifth generation pastor. My first memory on the planet earth was a teething on the pew of my grandfather's church. And my grandmother had a little, um, a butterscotch lifesaver that she was using to keep me from making noise. Y'all remember those? And, uh, and I looked up and my grandfather was preaching my other grandfather, who was the, the, the uh, senior elder at the church, was sitting up there because they had those king chairs back then, you know. And so he was sitting up there, and my mom was playing the organ. And just as a kid, I remember thinking, wow, I love the church. I love the church. And so I would have been a fifth-generation pastor. Uh, that was my trajectory. Uh, my dad, I was blessed to raise in a family that my dad had resources, and so uh, he didn't get to graduate to go to college, so he, he, he really wanted his boys to go to college, and he just said, go, go. And so I was like, well, I was going to go to Fuller Theological, and then I, I watched this movie with Carrie, Gr- uh, not Carrie Grant, but um, this is my wife, Christina, by the way. Her, yeah, she's <laughs> second best decision after I made accepting Christ, right, sitting right there. Um, so uh, I watched a movie, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Gregory Peck. And I was like, oh, wow, I want to I want to be like that guy, you know. And so I said, Dad, I want to go to law school. He said, go. You go to law school and then you go to seminary. Went to law school. I went to clerk at a law firm. The senior partner came in and he said, hey, we got a big case that just came in. It's this guy. His name's a, a Pastor Swaggart. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. And I will tell you, uh, he said, do you want to work on this case? His name was Jimmy Swaggart. Now, Jimmy Swagger was like the Bono of my house. He did not require a last name. Uh, you just said, Jimmy's doing this and Jimmy's doing that. I mean, he was, and I was like, unbelievable. I'm going to work on this Jimmy Swagger case. And so my second year of law school, 
I started working for churches, pastors and ministries. And, and so that's kind of how I got here. Who, what, when, where, why. Why did I do it? God called me to do it. And uh, we have an entire uh, law firm that's dedicated to doing it. So if you want to learn more about us, you can go to churchlawyers.com and find out more about us. Now, to what we're going to talk about here today. I will tell you um, my personal scripture that I hang on to uh, when I'm dealing with uh, a lot of the stuff that we deal with uh, is Psalm 40. Uh, David wrote, I, I waited patiently upon the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit and the muck and the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, put a new song in my heart. I will tell you, the pit is full. There's a lot of people in the pit. And we're oftentimes the first responders that get called to help those people get up out of the pit. And so we go into the pit a lot and we see stuff recurring over and over and over. And so part of my purpose of being here today, and I've, I love ARC. We've worked with ARC from the very beginning. And just the leadership here is incredible. I commend you guys for being here. Um, and I, I, I just, at this stage in my career, you start seeing stuff and you're like going, man, this just, just, just keeps like an, a movie, just keeps replaying. It's just the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, stuff that people have fallen into the pit. And a lot of the reasons, I think, the, the reasons for why they fall in the pit are pitiful reasons uh, because they, they, it's not necessarily they make some terrible decision. It's they just don't understand. They don't have knowledge. And so what I wanted to do today is I picked 25 things that I want to fly over really quickly. Uh, oh, I didn't hit my timer. Uh-oh. Y'all yell at Chris. Can you do this for me? Yes, sir. Adjust it, babe. Thank you. Um, my job. I got to go really fast. But but things that I see that, that people lack an understanding of. Okay, so in your little handout, uh, thank you. Your little handout is I have the first column. It's start right. All right. So let me explain some things to you. Uh, foundationally, legally, and you all may know this, so don't get offended if you know things that I'm saying because I don't know what you know. But I'm just going to tell you it's really important that you know that foundationally, legally, um, the organization that you work for or are going to church plant uh, has a legal construct. It's, it, has a, it has a legal foundation. And the foundation is the governance documents that, that created this entity that you're going to either, you either work for now or you're going to plant in the future, okay? And so what are those governance documents? Well, first of all, um, to start right, and, and, and I don't know if you've started or you're thinking about planting a church or whatever the deal is, but if you start right, there's going to be basic governance documents, and they're, they're, very, they're very simple, all right? But people don't understand that there's... A, a thing called a nonprofit organization, and that's in every state, and they differ by state, by state law. It's going to be different in Texas, where I'm from, in California here, or some other state. They're all governed by state law. Okay, and then there's the tax-exempt, the church, the tax-exempt entity, which is a federal issue, which is the same everywhere. Okay, so you need to understand what these governance documents are, and you need to understand what they uh, what the importance of them are. And, and most importantly, once you get incorporated uh, under your state's law, uh, you need to periodically calendar to go check and make sure, is our corporation in good standing? That's really important. Is, is it in good standing? And I will tell you another thing. I get calls every year. It has happened for 30 years, and it will happen this year. In December, I'll get a call from some church, some ministry, and the executive pastor or the treasurer or somebody's in a panic, and they're calling me and they said, 
Dave, what are we going to do? We made a profit this year. We can't make a profit. We're a non-profit. And I'm like, well, what is your plan to lose money every year? That's not what non-profit means. It means you're for a non-profit purpose. It doesn't mean that you, it's not a business plan. A business plan, let's lose money for goodness sakes. Uh, that's not the plan because you won't be around very long. All right, so that's not what nonprofit means. Uh, and also, you need to understand that a corporation is a person. And that's why it's really important that you have a corporate entity, in my opinion, uh, because a corporate legal person, there's males, there's females, and there's corporations. They can buy things, sell things, get sued, be sued, sue somebody. They're legally, a corporation is a person legally. And so you want to make sure that your corporation is done correctly, right? Now, I want to, I want to make this point. And that is people get really confused, and I understand why, the difference between articles of incorporation and bylaws. Okay, so I want you to understand this. Everybody here was born, right? Here, raise your hand if you weren't born. Okay, you were all born. And so wherever you were born, there was a birth certificate cranked out. And it just had basic information. did not say who you were going to marry, did not say what your beliefs were going to be, just basic stuff, how tall you were, how much you weighed, what the color of your eyes were, blah, 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 just basic information. And that's on file. That's your birth certificate. Every corporation has a birth certificate. It's articles of incorporation. In Texas, we call it certificate of formation now. I think it's because our legislature has heard me say this so much. They finally said, we're just going to change it to birth certificate for Middlebrook because he's wearing us out. So it's the certificate in Texas, which is weird. Everywhere else are articles of incorporation. They're filed with the secretary of state. It's just the birth certificate. It's going to have some basic information about who you are, what you do, how you're going to be set up, etc. Okay. Now compare that and contrast that to bylaws. Bylaws are the laws by which you live. They're much bigger. They're going to say more stuff. They're going to have more rules. They're going to have more. It's, it's like blown up in terms of the amount of information that's going to be in bylaws. Bylaws are not filed with anybody. Okay, so you can change your bylaws anytime you want, as long as you change them in accordance with the rules of your bylaws. Why? Because bylaws are the laws by which you live. All right, so the bylaws are super important. And I will tell you that um, people don't... People don't really appreciate how important they are until they really matter. Okay, it's like it's like the life insurance policy it doesn't really matter until it matters. Then it really matters. Okay, and it, then it matters. So you should take some time. You need to understand why did I spend this much of my precious time talking about that? Because this is the foundation, folks. The governance documents are the foundation of your entity. It's going to say whether or not you have. Uh, a board of directors and whether your board of directors are called elders, deacons, trustees, whatever, uh, you, you can have all those, but you got to have a board of directors. You got to have these basic things so that you can govern yourselves and make sure that it's done appropriately. Here's one thing I don't want you to forget. If your articles and your bylaws don't agree, there's a conflict. The articles win. They trump, for lack of a better term, the bylaws. So if you can go around and change and spend all this time and have committees and think about your bylaws and, oh, we want to change this. We used to have that, and now we want to do this. and all. That's fine. I always tell folks that if I, if I was a pastor, I'd get my bylaws out every year as part of my end-of-the-year thing going, hey, do we need to change this? We're, we said we do this. We're not really doing that anymore. Why do we have that in there? I would make sure my bylaws – I would want my bylaws, if I was a pastor, to be like a mirror 
When I hold up my bylaws, it should reflect who my church is and how we do church. Because fortunately, we live in a country that the government doesn't tell us how to do that. The church has the right to decide that. The church doesn't do a very good job of it sometimes, and that gets them in trouble. So I'll keep moving. Constitutions. If you get down to constitutions, on my y'all going on my little checklist. Constitutions. Um, you don't need them. Uh, your your these documents, these legal documents, are created for a secular authority to look at, a court, the Internal Revenue Service, some some uh, governmental body, and they don't understand all this church stuff. You should assume that you are going to go before a judge that is a a uh, a rabid atheist. It's never stepped foot in church in their entire life. And if your whole documents are so churchy that they can't understand them, that's not good. Okay, so we should write them such a way that they can understand. These are lawyers. He or she's going to read them and go, okay, when we say whatever, we say the board of elders, we mean the board of directors. Here and after, when we say board of elders, that's what that means. Because what does that tell the judge? Oh, okay, so when I hear that, that's code for in your world, your wacky, wacky world that you all live in. That's code for board of directors. I can deal with that. So the whole document should have two things in mind. It should reflect who you are as a church, number one. And number two, it should be written in such a way that the worst, worst heathen that you can imagine can understand what you're doing so that they can apply the law fairly to you and you will be treated fairly in accordance with that law because it's written for you to be treated fairly, okay? Uh, so constitutions, people use constitution in there all the time. That's not part of the law. Uh, I don't like the word constitution in bylaws. It's just a personal reason here. And why is that? Because we have this heading, constitution, and we have all this bylaw stuff in there. And so we've got bylaw stuff over here saying this is the laws by which we're going to now, now I've got three ways that I can say something. And I know I've got to have my articles, right? I got to have my bylaws, right? Why do I want to throw a constitution in there? That's going to confuse everybody anyway, because it's not the constitution. You go see that when you're in DC. Okay. So that was supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> importance, um, importance thing about governance provisions. I just think that uh, you all need to understand the default is under the nonprofit code that there's going to be a membership and that the membership will have rights. Most churches today, the churches that we work with will say, we're going to use the word member, but when we say the mem- when we say member, members don't have any rights. Okay. The board of d- directors governs the church, not the membership. And why is that? How would we do that in the modern world? We want to go do something. We have to have a membership meeting, blah, blah, blah. People don't want to do that anymore. And so um, just understand it's going to default that way. And you want to make sure that you don't write it in such a way that there's confusion. It should be, hey, we're glad to call you member. Member have responsibilities. They just don't have any rights legally. Okay? And so that's important for a lot of other reasons. We'll talk about it here real quick. All right. Another thing I would put in your bylaws is just making sure that you have arbitration language if you get into a dispute, uh, Christian arbitration, because you want to stay out of court if you can. That's just another opportunity to do that. And then finally, avoiding private inurement, private benefit. I don't have time to get into that because of our, our, our schedule here, but... Um, I will tell you that uh, this is the issue of fiduciary duty. You hear this thrown around a lot, particularly in board meetings where people aren't getting along. 
that's a violation of your fiduciary duty. Nobody really knows what that means. Let me tell you what it means. It's very simple. A fiduciary duty is a, a, a duty of loyalty, a duty of care, and a duty of obedience. Okay, Lo- loyalty, care, and obedience. That's all a fiduciary duty is. Very simple. It means if you sit on the board, if you're the pastor, if you are a director, you sit on the board, then you have a duty of loyalty to put the church's interests first before my own. Okay, I'm going to be loyal. Okay, a duty of care means I'm just going to be reasonable. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be reasonable. What would a reasonable person do? Okay, and obedience just simply means I'm going to obey all the laws, federal and state, local, every single one of them. That's why I have a job, uh, because there's a lot of them. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, the laws, what are the laws? Well, I, I don't know. It depends on where you live. There's a whole lot more of them out here than there are in Texas. Um, it's the way it is. All right. Uh, so private inurement, private benefit, these are issues and doctrines if they come up. I'm not going to spend time talking about it here today, but if they come up, these goes through the fiduciary duties, meaning you can't put a board of directors first. And, and, and I'll give you an example of when sometimes you want you want there to be a con- potential conflict, uh, but you want to waive it. For example, let's say let's say that I'm a roofing contractor and I uh, serve on the board. Okay, so I'm a director. I serve on the board and I'm a roofing contractor. And guess what? The church needs a new roof. And I say to the board, I want to put the new roof on the church. My wife and I prayed about it. We want to put the roof on the church for cost. We're not going to make any profit, literally zero profit. And you go and you look and go, yeah, there's just no way we can do it anywhere close to what Middlebrook's willing to do it for. But there's a potential conflict of interest, isn't there? Why? Because I sit on the board. So what do I do? Uh, I need to get out of the room. The rest of the board needs to talk about it. We need to go do a little dance and say, okay, thank you for that. We're not going to go out and do bids. And we're going to prove up the fact that there's not a conflict. And that's, my friends, is the difference between a potential conflict that gets cured and a conflict that you don't. And no matter how, the, if there's a conflict that exists and you don't get it cured, like I just described, then somebody can always be critical of you as a church and come back and go, that was a sweetheart deal. You did that for Middlebrook because, you know, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. It splits church, blah, blah, blah. You don't, you don't want, to, you want to avoid all of that, okay? All right. Uh, and then I put as the next item in the bottom of that start right is seek experienced wisdom. Uh, you're doing that here, okay? Seek experienced wisdom. We're talking about business, and, and I know there's a lot of people who don't even think church should be. You shouldn't even talk about church and business. That's not right. Uh, that's not in the Bible. That's right. It's not in the Bible, but there is a business component to church. There's a legal component to church. That's the world that we live in, right? And so begin to seek wisdom. And we'll talk about why that's important a couple t- columns down the way. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is um, take initiative. And that is, uh, if you're going to have a church, uh, you, you've got to have a board of directors, which we talked about earlier. doesn't really matter what you call them. Uh, you get to decide that, but you have to have the ultimate, where does the buck stop? Who makes the decisions? Who legally will get named in that lawsuit? Because uh, they're on the board. Somebody's got to make decisions, and you've got to make it clear who that is. And I cannot tell you how many times I've put down bylaws, and I'm like, I cannot tell for the life of me who's in charge of this church. And you go, I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, if anybody's ever going to come to Jesus by reading a set of bylaws, these are them. 
But I've been doing this for 30 years and have yet to get the call that says, David, you're not going to believe it, but somebody accepted Christ after reading your bylaws. <laughs> hadn't happened. I'm, I'm open to it, but I mean, hadn't happened. So that, because that's really not the purpose. Okay. The purpose is, is to have laws by which you'll, you'll govern yourselves. Okay. So, um, You've got to have a board of directors. And, and I will tell you, uh, the importance of, of directors is that you need to understand in your bylaws numerically what's the minimum, what's the maximum that we can have. Okay? Uh, you get to set that rule. You, you get to set it. Uh, you can have, uh, generally, it's, most states it's three, some states it's two. You can have as few as two, maybe three, and then how many, how many want you want to have is up to you. Uh, I would tell you that in my personal experience, that there's a number where boards get unmanageable, uh, particularly in the early days of a church. But even when a church gets huge, almost it almost it just is never a great reason to have a huge board. It, it's just not, in my opinion. But you also you need to understand that you need to have an even number of board members. Why? Because you want to avoid a deadlock. Uh, and a lot of po- folks, and we encourage folks to put this in their bylaws, even to have a deadlock provision that says, even if under all these circumstances, we can't figure out every potential circumstance, should we find ourselves in a deadlock, then the senior pastor president has the right to cast a deadlock vote. Because uh, we don't want the thing locked up uh, and you have to go to a court or whatever to get an issue addressed, right? So those, those are important issues. Um, and, and remember at the end of the day, the board has to be functionally independent and primarily comprised of a majority non-relatives uh, and non-staff members. Uh, because you can't, you as a senior pastor president of the corporation, you can't say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my family on the board and they're not going to do, you know, I'll pull the rug out from under them if they don't vote the way I want. And, and I'm going to put these people that work for me because I'll fire them if they don't vote the way I want. And so guess what? That's not an independent board. Now, could you, are, there, are there ways to get around that? I'm just telling you, it's not a good idea. Uh, and, 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 and it kind of defeats the spirit of what the law is intended, and you'll never be looked at favorably by these governmental eyes that would be looking at you if you just stacked the board. Okay, so you don't want to do that. Uh, board board meetings. Um, you got to make sure before you have a meeting that there's a quorum present, uh, and you got to send out notice. And if you didn't send out notice, you got to wave notice. A lot of folks will tell me, "Oh yeah, you know, we had a board meeting. We were walking back from the." from the, the, the platform to the to the um, green room and whatever, and we just kind of talked in the hallway, and we said, hey, this is a board meeting. You're like, well, yeah. And I go, that's not a board meeting. Uh, there's some formality involved for you to have a proper board meeting. You understand what those rules are. And uh, another thing that we see a lot is folks will say, um, we, we had the, the uh, board meeting by email. You can't do that. Uh, and the reason for that, under state law, it says you, you you can have a telephonic board meeting. You can use technology, you know, telephonic or Skype or whatever. But people have to be able to hear and see if you're using Skype. I mean, you, you, they have to be able to object. And if it's just by email, that doesn't work. Okay, so that you don't want to do that. Um, what else have we got? Um, one one important thing is I think when you're having a board meeting is that you don't always have to have a board meeting. You can create something in action by written consent where you say, hey, we, we, the board members, blah, 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 and we want to do this. And so we talked about it, and here's the consent resolution, and we say this is what we're going to do. Therefore, we're going to do this, 
and then we send it around. It's got everybody's name, and they all sign it and send it back, and it's unanimous, and it's signed off on. You didn't have to board, have a board meeting. How many board meetings should we have? Well, I know you have to have legally one a year. It's called the AGM, the Annual General Meeting. That's the minimum. You have to have at least one duly called board meeting per year. I think you should have more than that. How many more, Dave? I don't know. Depends on what you got going on. Uh, I, I will tell you the board, you should call together a board that's going to have insight, input, and wisdom, and they're going to help you get, get to where God's called you to go. And so you shouldn't be afraid of having board meetings. But can you have too many board meetings? Absolutely. Am I a fan of we're going to have a board meeting every month no matter what? I'm not a fan of that. Why? Uh, maybe you want to get together and have coffee, but why need you have a board meeting? Because uh, people have a tendency to want to fill time with stuff, and then we have problems. So I don't know if that's helpful or not. Um, voting requirements. So you, we talked about generally in your bylaws, it's going to have stuff that generally it's by majority. There's other things that it's a super majority. Uh, for example, generally we're going to make approve the budget. That would be a general thing in your bylaws, and it would say that's by majority. Removal of the pastor uh, should be a super majority. Uh, should be a lot more involved there, in my opinion. Okay, and so I would I would tell you to think about that. Uh, another thing is folks don't really understand and they get confused. And I don't want you to ever be confused about this, okay? What's the difference between an officer and a director? Confusing, right? A little bit. Because officers don't necessarily have to be directors. Who are the officers? The president, the secretary, the treasurer, okay? And in church world, generally we say the senior pastor president. They don't have to be that way. Uh, the secretary, a lot of, this is a big confusing thing for folks. They're like, well, when it says secretary, does that mean Susie, who's the church secretary? I'm like, no, uh, this need, this is an officer of the corporation. Okay. President, secretary, treasurer, uh, vice president. Those are all officer positions. They don't necessarily have to be directors who are directors. They're the people that vote on stuff. Now you can be an officer and a director, not a problem. Generally, that is the situation, but not always. Okay, so just understand that there's a distinction between the two, and the roles are different. So when you read your bylaws, when you get to that part, really think about who are these people and who's doing what and what are their responsibilities, because they have legal responsibilities. You also need to think about how are we going to remove folks that are on the board or suspend them? How are we going to do that? And, uh, and what happens when somebody res resigns and how quickly do we have to replace them? And what does it say in our bylaws? You know, what is, what you, you're gonna, where are you going to go? You're not going to call me. You may call me to interpret your bad bylaws, but your bylaws should tell you uh, when there's a resignation or a termination or whatever, this is how it rolls. And because why? Because they're the laws by which you decided to run church. Okay. Uh, record keeping. Um. Generally, the church secretary, not the secretary that works for the church, but the officer position, president, secretary, treasurer, the church secretary uh, officer is in charge of making sure that the minutes are taken of the meeting of the board. That doesn't mean that he or she has to do it themselves, but they may say, okay, uh, I'm going to let somebody else take the notes and then I'll review them and see if they're correct. And then they get presented at the next board meeting and adopted. Okay, so that would be a role of a secretary. Uh, so it, 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 
don't again, don't get confused about whether a secretary works for the church because that's not the same person. All right. Uh, another question that comes up all the time is, should we record our board meetings? Uh, I don't think so. Um, in some states, uh, you can get into problems about uh, complaints about, well, I didn't give my permission to be recorded and it's against the law if you don't get permission, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in Texas, we're a one permission state. Just whatever. You don't have to worry about that. But here's the real problem for me. The real problem is, is that we're going to create, we're going to have a recording and then we're going to have these minutes. Well, where did the recording go? Who's in charge of the recording? What if the recording is not exactly what the minutes say? Which one is right? Now we just created an issue for the court, uh, right? We don't want, we don't, we just want one, one set of minutes and we want to make sure that those are done correctly. But, um, Anyway, we'll keep uh, we'll keep moving here. Um, we talked about conflict of interest. Let's move on to. You'll see that at the at the bottom of uh, of the first column, st- start right. I said seek experienced wisdom. On the top of the third column, I said secure experienced professional counsel. At some point uh, in this journey, you're going to have to decide. Uh, that there's going to be some professionals that are going to help you along the way. Uh, it's not just the attorney. I had a, a pastor tell me once, he said, you know, uh, when I started, a very wise pastor told him, said, when you move to your first town, the first thing you should be thinking about is who's going to be my lawyer? Who's going to be my CPA, personally? Who's going to be my church auditor? And who's going to be my insurance guy? And he goes, that was some of the best advice I ever got. And I would say, you know, we don't have to, you don't have to go spend a whole lot of time. There's folks out there that actually, they, they, for lack of a better term, specialize, they focus exclusively on doing that. And so you can get people that really understand what it is you do and they can help you. Insurance is a really critically important thing. So you need to, um, you need to secure experience, professional counsel. And we all know that, uh, what the scripture says about a multitude of counselors, um, I will tell you that um, the the level of expertise that is required uh, for pastors today uh, is just amazing. I mean, they have to be architects, site planners. Uh, they have to be politicians. They have they have so many hats that they have to wear. And if they don't bring along people to help them with that, they're not going to get there uh, in, in 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 successfully generally. So uh, just think about that. The next thing is uh, we get asked this a lot. And in, in, if you're starting a church plant, what happens? Um, when can you issue a charitable receipt? Uh, people ask this question and that that is they set up the entity and then they're going to file this thing called a form 1023 application for recognition of exempt status. Don't worry about that. But it's something you file with the IRS. Well, it, it can take somewhere between six and 25 months for it to come back. And, uh, and it, for, fortunately for us, we have a fast track program, so we get them back really fast. But, but um, what happens? So if somebody wants to write a check and can they use it? Can they get a tax exempt receipt for it or whatever? And the short answer is that uh, the, the earliest you can do it is once you're incorporated, as long as you've got that application filed. So um, that's, that's something that you need to um, be mindful of. The other thing that I have is, is uh, what, what, kind of things that you do you have to file. I mean, you have to understand as a business person in the church business world that that the first amendment privilege that you have for a religious freedom doesn't exempt you from everything. Okay? For example, if you hire an employee, 
you got to you got to file a W two. You have reporting you have to do, right? Uh, if you hire an independent contractor, you have reportings that you have to do. If you live in certain states, there may be uh, local, county, and state things that you have to be prepared to deal with. Uh, if you're building and contracting and and making sure that you're in compliance with the building codes, there's just a whole bunch of stuff, and you just need to understand that there's a lot of issues out there and um, be mindful of them. Um, on the certified public accountant thing, I would say that, um, first of all, your bylaws should address what your fiscal year is, okay? And that is, generally, it's most folks, they put it at the end of the, the calendar year. You don't have to do that. You can choose for some other reason to do something different. But um, you have to choose a fiscal year for a tax accounting purpose. You also, uh, you also need to understand what an in- independent audit is. And what, why would I want to have an independent audit done? And who does that for me? Uh, well, certified public accountants do. They're outside auditors, not an IRS audit. That's a governmental audit. This is an outside audit firm that will come in and do a, a review of your books and records and your processes and your policies to make sure uh, that you are, um, um, you know, you've done everything you can to avoid fraud uh, that there's no there's no uh, compliance issues with with state or federal laws, et cetera. And they'll issue a management letter, and this management letter is something where they'll just say, "He's this are the strengths and the weaknesses that we see with this organization," and so they'll work with you to get those cleaned up. And so uh, a lot of folks say, "Well, I don't want to do an audit every year. That's really expensive." Well, another option for you to do is if you don't want to do an audit every year, then you can have um, an annual review done by audit firms. And this used to be a really laborious, expensive uh, thing. Again, just like with lawyers and, and insurance folks, there's audit firms that they really hone in on the religious nonprofit world, and they'll they can do a lot of this offsite now because of computers and technology and all that stuff. And so. Um, if you don't want to have an audit done every year, then you can just have a review done and, uh, and maybe go every other year. Okay. But you need to, you need to be mindful of that and understand what that process is. Um, I want to talk about insurance. Uh, if I had a list of things that as a pastor, I was like, okay, every December I'm going to set aside a day with my team and we're going to go over stuff, my bylaws, making sure this, that, and the other. One of the things I would put on my list is our insurance because I want to get it out, and I want to make sure that we're properly insured. Uh, the biggest risk that a church faces in the world today uh, in terms of lawsuits, and when I say uh, you can get sued for a lot of things, but when they're actually going to go to court and they'll take a judgment against you is what? What would you guess it would be? Child abuse. Okay, child abuse. And uh, it's it's in the high 80s, low 90s percent of the total. I, I will tell you in our firm, there's not hardly, a, there's not definitely not a week and there's hardly a day or two that goes by that we don't have to consult with somebody about reporting, what the reporting requirements are in their state. Does this constitute a mandatory reporting requ- requirement, et cetera, or what happens when there's an outcry, et cetera, et cetera. We also work with the insurance companies and we help uh, defend churches uh, that have uh, had issues of molestation, and uh, they're, they're terrible. Um, but the uh, damages that can result from your failure to uh, exercise reasonableness, uh, it's huge. And so you got to be insured for that. And you have to understand that um, 
starting with my review every year is that a lot of folks, I'll ask them, send me your insurance policy. They went on where they are. Okay, well, you should know where they are. Okay, that's number one. You should know what they say. Uh, and if you don't know what they say, get somebody that understands and that'll help you know what they say. And then thirdly, that you need to make sure that they've got enough coverage for you, right? And so that that's the things that you need to be uh, concerned about. Set of the employment records is another issue. Where do you keep them? Uh, it's the entire cycle, the life cycle of employment. Life, employment begins and it ends. Okay, it either ends that they they quit, they're fired, or they're retired. Okay, uh, or they pass on. I mean, there's just going to be some end to that life cycle, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to keep records of. Who's going to be responsible for that? Where are these documents kept? Well, they should be kept along with insurance policies and other legal documents uh, in a fireproof safe in a place that not everybody has access to it. So you need to be thinking about those kind of things as well. Um, One other thing I just want to tell you real quick about religious discrimination. I know I'm trying to keep to my time here, but uh, religious discrimination. You guys know that the First Amendment in the Constitution provides um, for the free exercise of religion, and it prohibits the establishment of religion, all right? And that's our First Amendment protected right. It's right in the same neighborhood of freedom of the press. We have freedom of the religion. Of religion. The thing that I will tell you about that is that um, you need to understand that 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 sword that you have, the right to make discrimination decisions or hiring decisions based upon religion, it cuts both ways. So if I was going to be a pastor, I would first want to realize that I can be terminated. I have no employment rights. A pastor has no employment rights. For the same reason that you can discriminate on hiring someone, the church, board, or whomever, whoever has the authority, can terminate someone for any reason or no reason at all. It doesn't matter how long they've been there. If it's a good reason or a bad reason, et cetera, why doesn't a pastor have any employment rights? Because of the First Amendment of the Constitution. It cuts both ways. And so I would have an employment agreement. I mean, I think an employment agreement is a great idea for a church to have with their senior pastor. Um, and then finally, um, administration. We're not going to talk about that. We don't have time. Uh, I would tell you that I, I, wrote a, I wrote a training system a few years ago. And uh, it's called um, the Guardian System. It's protecting kids and children's ministry. And it's built around the word stop. We want to stop abuse, right? We want to screen. We want to train. We want to operate. We want to plan to respond. And you you guys need to have those are good things to think about in terms of how do we build our policy? Uh, How do we make sure that, that kids are safe? Because I will tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years uh, churches are um, churches are not looked favorably upon if they allow something bad to happen to kids by the community. So you need to keep that in your mind. We hope you enjoyed this session from the Art Conference. Our heart is that you are more encouraged and excited about your calling than ever before. For dates and locations and to register for an upcoming Art Conference, visit artconference.com.